Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. Go to audibletrial.com slash Rushmore. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Let me just, let me just re- record this in case I want to drop it in. Son of a bitch. And welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friends Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. And in addition to Richard and Michael, I have my very good friends, Ben and Bob. How are you doing, Ben and Bob? Hey there. I'm doing awesome. How are you? <laughs> very well. And I'm very glad that you are here to break up the monotony of my ongoing conversations with these losers, uh, uh, Richard and Michael. What? Bob and Ben are here with us to debate the Mount Rushmore horror comedy. And you gentlemen are now am, am sharing out the season two of your horror comedy series. Tell me about that. Okay. It's called uh, 20 Seconds to Live. It's a web series. And it's uh, very short uh, anthology episodes. Every episode, uh, different characters... At some point, a timer comes up, counts down from 20 to zero. By the time it gets to zero, somebody dies. Yeah, and there's kind of a game to it. Like, you know, we, we've learned after doing it for a while that the trick is to make sure that you either want everybody to die or you want nobody <laughs> to die. And so as an audience, as soon as that title card comes up, you're like, one of these people is going to die uh-huh. and how. And we're also proud to say no one's ever died by gunshot yet. So, uh, very you cool. know, it's always uh, something a little bit, hopefully, more mm-hmm. creative. Ben, you're currently editing season two. How's that been going, Ben? Oh, it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun, but it's uh, we when we did the first season, it was like kind of piecemeal. We would just do one episode and then a couple episodes and this it's like the whole season all at once and so uh, I, I feel like a full-time uh, tv editor right now just yeah chopping away at this stuff um ben's not only an editor but also cinematographer and one of the um the some of the provenance of his career has to do with being involved with a horror film from way back what was that uh, uh that was the blair witch project i was the production designer on it and i also wrote most of the backstory well, that's cool cool um and if ben wrote some of the backstory bob you're a writer was that your role on this uh, yeah, I, I co-created the show with Ben and uh, wrote um, almost all the scripts. Ben and I co-wrote two of them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been a screenwriter, working screenwriter in um, over a decade now. Yeah. Uh, so Bob had uh, has had some big, big films out there and some really cool, cool indies. Uh, will you let people know what they are? Oh, yeah. I wrote, I wrote Killers with uh, Ashton Kutcher and Katherine Heigl that came out a few years ago. And then the big indie drama, The Air I Breathe, which I co-wrote with the director, Jiho Lee. And um, before 20 Seconds to Live, I was uh, a writer on the USA TV show White Collar. Cool. Well, uh, I have seen all of this web series. I enjoy it very much. Um, 20 Seconds to Live, uh, 20secondstolive.com or 20STL on Twitter is where you can find more information. Uh, the second season is coming out in a couple months. Unlike this podcast, which is long, long-winded and sometimes not uh, action-packed at all uh, or even interesting, um, theirs is concise, entertaining, engaging for fans of horror, for fans of comedy. You're going to find uh, that you're binging um, both seasons of the series because you're going to love it. So um, to... Jeff, s- go ahead. Jeff, I don't know how to tell you this. What's that? But there's a timer over your head. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Right oh, now. my God. <laughs> Good news. It's like 35 years, so oh, you're, wow. you're, you're oh, okay. 35 years to live. <laughs> Um, the, Not quite as exciting. <laughs> uh, the, the topic that we've chosen uh, specifically to uh, get these guys' amazing uh, opinions on is the Mount Rushmore of horror comedy. And as a child, I was more into comedy. And then as a, growing into an adulthood and getting a better uh, taste for horror, I found myself gravitating to horror comedy versus just straight 
horror because it was a uh, straight horror is maybe just a little too rich for my blood. But uh, <laughs> I am fascinated uh, to get your opinion on the similarities between horror and comedy. When I was studying comedy, they kind of describe it as this the creation and release of tension and mm-hmm. expe- dealing with expectations and things like that. Is there anything that you find similar about the genre? Of totally. Comedy? I think that they both rely on surprise. I mean, surprise is, a, is at the core of it. And I always think the hardest thing to do is a dark comedy and horror comedy is, I would say, kind of a subset of dark comedy yeah. because you run the risk of being too morbid, you'll undermine the comedy. If you're too jokey-jokey, then, it, then it's not scary. And the ones that, that do it right, and these are the ones that I think we've chosen, are, are to me the ones where you can you can have the comedy and you can have the the horror and they both work together i, I kind of feel like the kind of the the dna of it starts with uh abbott and costello meet the wolfman oh yeah yeah and and it's like abbott and costello or abbott and costello but the monsters the universal monsters are all actually scary mm-hmm. i was um i was actually looking up that might have been one of our choices but i was looking up and it was just like the most famous of like those types of movies. I guess they had other movies that were similar beforehand. They had like knockoff characters of Abbott and Costello that met zombies before Abbott and Costello met Frankenstein's monster. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of a few episodes ago when we recorded, or la- last year when we did Halloween mm-hmm. songs. And I went into it thinking that uh, the Monster Mash was like the first monster uh, related. Yeah. But it wasn't. It just capitalized on a trend later on mm-hmm. but i think movies like that tend to when you when something is so successful it becomes like the pinnacle or the end all and you're like oh this is where it came from but it kind of kind of yeah, built just built built to there and then built from there yeah but and, and i have to give steve barton the uh the uh, publisher of dread central credit for kind of pointing me to this but it's movies like that when they do it right the comedic characters are funny but the situations are real, like hmm, you know, right. and you have to keep the stakes very real, and it's very, very hard to do. There's, and and we could probably, like, I, I could come up with twenty Mount Rushmores of failed horror comedies, sure, where sure. they <laughs> they were trying to be too scary and it wasn't funny at all, or more often they were like yeah. goofy. Parody. That's interesting. And there's also movies that are just they're just straight up horror movies that have funny stuff in them. Mm-hmm. We debated a lot of movies, and I'm sure that it's going to come up with like, what is a horror comedy? Is it is it just a scary movie that has some laughs, or is it its own thing? Oh. I was I was I aiming with Richard, and I said. Is Freddy Krueger funny, or does he just make like <laughs> shitty puns that like he thinks is funny? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think we came down to it's a horror movie that has comedic elements, but there's something different between that and an actual horror comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd love to jump right in, um, gentlemen. You are our guests, and so you have the first uh, choice. So, if one of you would like to let us know what you're going to go with first. All right, uh, we're going to start with Re- Return of the Living Dead. Which, 1985, it's, it's probably my favorite horror comedy. Has anybody seen it? Yes. yes. You've seen it? Okay, I good. Seen it. I, is that the one in the mall? No. no. Okay. I, okay, this is the one. It's, it's, I've, seen a, I've seen a few of them, but I can't remember. The one in the mall is Dawn of the Dawn Dead. Of the Thank Dead. you. Which okay, we right. to. So Return of the Living Dead, the conceit is that Night of the Living Dead actually happened, and the government took all the zombies and put them in these canisters and ended up at the bottom of this uh, medical supply company. And so these guys, bumbling guys, accidentally open it, releases the chemical into the air, and this chemical makes everything that's dead alive. So like the half dogs and the butterflies. <laughs> and there's a cadaver there that they have to then kill. And they chop up and they burn in the incinerator at this uh, funeral home, which then puts smoke up into the air with the chemical that then rains onto the nearby graveyard. Wait a, wait a second. 
Sean Hannity just said last night that this was the result of the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you're saying this is a movie. It's, it's a the movie. Original oh title, my God. The original title was Thanks, Obamacare. And nobody got it. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, all these zombies come, come to life, and there happens to be like punk rockers partying in the graveyard. Including Linnea Quigley. Linnea Quigley as Trash, the punk rocker who just stripped has strip teases for no reason. Because she's Linnea Quigley. In a graveyard. Quigley. Yeah. But it's like, it's actually a really good zombie siege movie when these punk rockers have to team up with these uh, uh, medical supply workers. So it's like, at its heart, it's a really good zombie movie. It's kind of groundbreaking. You brought up some points about yeah, the first, zombie rules. One of the first running zombie movies that I've ever seen. And also, and somebody can correct me if... Sorry, that, that, that means not slow zombies. Right? Yes, fast okay. zombies. These zombies, like uh, an ambulance pulls up and they, and they swarm it immediately. Yeah. And they talk. And as far as I know, this is the first zombie movie that ever has zombies craving brains specifically. Oh, okay. like before wow. then, like the George Romero zombies, they just eat you and pull out your guts and whatever. This one, they wanted to eat brains, and they even interrogate uh, like a half a woman monster mm-hmm. who's like strapped down to a table, and she talks about how uh, eating the brains takes away the pain of being dead. Oh, wow, wow. Mm-hmm. Why this versus another? It sounds like. Clearly, there's some innovations that happened or expanded on the the zombie um, lore, but why this version? For me, it's the tone is exactly right on for a horror comedy. It works as a horror movie. You took out the comedy stuff. It's a great zombie siege movie yeah. that's really inventive and cool and different, but it's also super funny. It's got a killer soundtrack. It's like that mid-80s like sweet spot. And you'll see most of our movies are from the mid-80s. I think those were, <laughs> for me, that was kind of the dream time of, of horror comedies. Um, but this movie just rocks and it's like I think another thing when we talked about um, the idea of like horror and comedy as, as genres it's you, we forget about the crowd experience both those movies separately mm. have amazing experiences that you want to see them with a crowd of people when you put together an excellent horror comedy seeing it with a crowd is just like religious experience and this movie itself I saw it in the theater as a kid and it just killed. That's definitely something that I haven't really experienced lately like I don't I don't go to a lot of horror movies and I I don't really see any movies. You're going to movies. Full stop. I don't, you have a newborn. You have a new any, kid, not newborn. Anywhere with a, an eight-month-old. But like, whenever they'd show like a trailer for a movie, like on TV, a commercial, mm-hmm. like, oh, this is the new, you know, whatever, some baby crawling on the ceiling movie uh, that's filmed yeah. in black and white and <laughs> costs $40,000 to make. And I can't, what's the name of that? Paranormal Activity. Something like that. Where like, they always show like the audience reacting. They have like right. that hidden camera in the front. Yeah, yeah. And it's always like all those screams and all those jumps. It's like, I, I can't remember the last time I've been to a movie that physically I like leapt out of my seat. Oh, so I'm, I'm excited to see something like this. Yeah. It's, well, in, in a theater that I'll never get a chance to do. It, it'll, it'll probably play it like the new Beverly or something. But like also to what you were saying, Jeff, uh, I think that this movie also is hysterically funny, and it and it's for the exact uh, you know Abbott and Costello ness of mm-hmm. all the characters. You know, you start with this young guy and this old guy in this medical supply warehouse. The first shot of the movie, it says like uh, there's a title card that comes up that, that says you know the the names and institutions uh, in this movie are real or something like that. Like basically, yeah. and then the next the first shot is the side of a building. It says you need a medical supply. You know, <laughs> and then you go into it, and it's like this crusty old guy played by James Karen. He's hilarious. I forget the actor. Who plays the young guy, but um, but it's like he's showing him the ropes, and it and it's just so goddamn funny. The first thing that you see that you uh, when they release the the zombie goo uh, is these split dog models that are like made from real dogs for veterinarians mm-hmm. in in training, and they're barking. 
and wow, it's it's wow. just a funny yeah. visual, you know. It's yeah. it, like to me, this movie has as many laughs as it has scares, mm-hmm. and then the punk rockers like perfectly encapsulate what I think punk rockers were like back then. in yeah. in, a, in a way, it's not like well thought out punk rockers. It's <laughs> assholes who want to hang out in a in a graveyard in the middle of the night and have <laughs> one of the one of their girlfriends strip on a mausoleum. You know, <laughs> the, you know, and right down the line, and it also uh, features like legendary Clue Gulliger, who's just an amazing character actor and he is hilarious in this movie because he's like the only one who's like are you guys complete idiots but he's also the one who like puts every uh, puts the uh the original zombie into the uh crematorium and and ends up uh, uh, and yeah. i don't i don't want to ruin the end for people who haven't seen it but the end is an okay. amazing punchline yeah okay. this is a one in on the rushmore i think of the 80s punk rockers do x sort of like yeah. movies <laughs> like the surf nazis must die uh-huh. there's a whole genre of these the movies the yeah, there's a whole genres of, the, of these movies where most of them were police academies. Maybe oh, a police <laughs> academy where there's a genre type film, and uh-huh. it's like, well, what do we need to do to make this kind of current and hit? Mm-hmm. I know we'll throw in really bad black flag impersonators. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like the extras from that Chips episode of of punk rock. Yeah, basically. When there was a what was the, there was a re, um, a Punisher reboot with the guy from Rome, uh, and he's been in oh the, yeah, Punisher name, yeah, Punisher Ray. Um, Stevenson Ray Stevenson yeah um, and they had parkour he was out trying to stop a parkour gang it's like, oh, <laughs> oh no. yeah come on it's, awesome. like, it's like the office when it was like six years ago yeah. <laughs> they had a parkour, parkour episode parkour. six years when ago done, parkour you guys want to go form a parkour gang yeah. Yeah. oh we were so qualified I'm looking around the room right now I well, see a lot of parkour in this house com- comedy has an opportunity to create social satire and um, social commentary and I remember it was that George Romero was talking about the zombie films mm-hmm. as having that opportunity to 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 uh, show the society that we live, the challenges of society that we live, because yeah. there's often haves and have-nots, and when an epidemic like this happens, you see how it becomes politicized and how people uh, who have a bunch of money are able to evade for a while <laughs> this menace, but they're not always able to. And now this, correct me if I'm wrong, this is not a George Romero film. There's like a split there, right? Yes. The lineage. John Russo and George Romero. So John Russo and George Romero both created Night of the Living Dead and then they had a professional falling out. I think they were still friends. But uh, John Russo kept the rights to, to Living Dead and George Romero kept the rights to Of the Dead. So the George Romero <laughs> movies are Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, <laughs> Survival of the Dead, blah, blah, blah. And then somehow, uh, John Russo didn't make this movie. He had somehow he ended up getting the rights of it. I think he's to, got story credit actually. On oh, this really? movie. Oh, because Dan O'Bannon wrote and directed it. Right. Dan O'Bannon wrote Alien. Yeah, you know, huh? Dan O'Bannon's a huge screenwriter. I mean, he passed away, but he wrote a lot of classic stuff. And this was one of the only movies he directed. I yeah, I think yeah. I'm not sure if he ever directed another movie. After one this. more movie after this, I've never. It's oh. a Lovecraft. You, you mentioned if George Michael said, "I'll take Wham and Andrew Ridgely. You can have the exclamation mark <laughs> at the end <laughs> of the word." <laughs> oh, thanks. So, guys. Uh, uh, they came out swinging. What they do you did. got? All right, so um, so we did. We were almost going to do categories this week, and then the last one kind of fell apart. Yeah, so don't even. So don't I'm not even mention it. Okay, um, thanks for nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is something we were going to do, but then we didn't do. So what I'm here for? Yeah. Um, so first one we're doing, sticking on the zombie film tip, uh, Shaun of the Dead. Oh, fun. Um, speaking of George Romero, this was clearly speaking ins- of great soundtracks. Also speaking of great soundtracks, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, clearly inspired by Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, actually, the genesis of it came from Simon Pegg and uh, Edgar Wright's uh, British TV show, Space. Oh, okay. They did an episode where uh, Simon Pegg's character, Tim, 
winds up taking amphetamines to stay up all night to play video games and winds up hallucinating that there's a zombie apocalypse and he has to stop it. Uh. And when they did that, um, Edgar Wright realized, oh, we both love George Romero films. We should maybe try and do something with this. Mm-hmm. Came up with a script outline that was originally called Tea Time of the Dead. Not Tea <laughs> Time as in golf, but actual like drinking tea. And uh, just sort of went from there. And that's where the uh, Three Cornettos uh, trilogies wow. begin. But wow. I love this film. It's probably This is my favorite horror comedy movie of all time. Mm-hmm. And I think what you guys talked about earlier, where a film has to have the right balance between horror and comedy. I mean, this is one that certainly leans more on the comedy, I think, more than the horror. But when they do a horror piece, like some of the set pieces, they actually work. Mm. Um, like this would be one that would be easy to get really wrong. And I think that's true of a lot of the, any of these horror comedy films that are, let's say satires of the genre or inspired by the genre. If you don't have a love for that genre itself, if you just say, oh, well we have an idea to make a funny zombie film. I don't really love zombie films, but this would be a funny idea. Mm -hmm. Ha ha ha. You're not going to get the zombie part right. And it's not going to read as authentic. And, there's a clear love of the Romero uh, zombie films, the Italian zombie films, some of that other stuff that you can see is being brought into here. And to me, I, I said, I think it's just the perfect balance of the two. I haven't seen, I saw it in the theaters, but have viewed it on you know, my, at home a bunch of times. I don't recall, was it ever, were you ever afraid when you saw it? Or or did yeah. you were you ever grossed out or whatever those things you yeah need? there was there's definitely the gross out part where uh-huh. uh, uh you know there's a few scenes where guys are getting people are getting like disemboweled yeah. by packs of zombies and arms getting ripped yeah. off and such I do remember thinking that these characters were in peril and that the the the, the danger is real but yeah I don't ever remember being un, unlike some other films like oh sh- shit that was a jump scare <laughs> that was that was I'm really frightened by there it. are a couple of scenes in like when they're kind of stuck in the car. Mm-hmm. And uh, his stepfather, uh, I can't remember his name. I shouldn't remember his Bill name. Bill Nighy. Yeah, Bill Nighy is like is turning into a zombie. Yeah. Like in the moment that they're in the car together, and you kind of looks or he kind of turns over his shoulder and realizes that, you know, two seconds ago he was a human being, and mm-hmm. then like you're just he's in there fighting him off at that moment. Yeah. And it's, it's it's you know frightening. And there's yeah. a real tension in that kind of later scene when they're back in the Winchester and they realize it's all kind of going wrong and mm-hmm. you know his mom's turning into a, a zombie and you know who's what are we going to do about it? Yeah, that's like some there's some real actual drama and tension there mm-hmm. yeah, for that sure. Is, that's that is earned. Scenes, I always think of that that scene in particular when I think about the movie because to me I think that's when I light up because it felt really scary. Right, uh-huh. and it felt earned, too, yeah. because you felt like you knew the characters well enough, and it felt like even though they were comedy characters, you felt like you had enough of a sense of who they really were so that when they do get in trouble and there's this peril and there's a sense of hopelessness, you actually start to feel that, mm-hmm. which if the rest of the movie wouldn't have been handled as well as it was, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have mattered. I think Edgar Wright seems to have a kind of like Quentin Tarantino-esque sort of knowledge of other movies of like past movies that kind of has allowed him to build like the Cornetto movies based on other genres to kind of take bits and pieces and make homages to other things and do it in a way that's very clever without being over yeah kind of he doesn't overplay his hand mm-hmm. he takes just enough reference to be like oh this is a nod to this it's very it's tongue in cheek and without it being like a full bow to something or to take you know a shot directly and be mm-hmm. like this is exactly what this is 
it just kind of refilmed. Yeah, and it's think, pretty interesting. I think it's interesting, and I think also like Tarantino, he makes it look easy. Mm. So I think oh, yeah. he makes people. Look, I think other filmmakers look at his stuff and go, "Well, I can do that." So I feel like Shaun of the Dead is usually so many filmmakers are like, "I'm making a movie that's X meet Shaun of the Dead," and that's the one thing that bums me out about it is it's created this whole generation of filmmakers that go, "I can do that" because he yeah. he knocked it out of the park first time, and I'm like, <laughs> ah, because it's so hard. And and you're right, it's, it's a fantastic film, and he nails the tone of it, and I just. And, and it was definitely one of the ones that we debated. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and you mentioned how he makes it look easy. I mentioned space. I mean, that's pretty much whatever is three British TV seasons of nothing but genre parodies or genre takes stacked yeah. on top of them, right. stacked oftentimes multiple ones in each episode. So it was the perfect training ground for them to be able to figure out, okay, how do we actually take something and make it that's an homage to something, but also kind of make it our own, which I think is where, where a lot of those type of you know, rip off type type movies kind of right. get lost. Well, yeah, I think that like to do a proper homage, like if you'd never seen a zombie movie and Shaun of the Dead was the first zombie movie you ever saw, you would have no problem following it. You might miss some of the references it was making, but it's self-contained. And to me, right. I always hate it when I go to see something, I mean, unless it's a sequel to something else, obviously, but I hate it when I go see something where it's like, I have to walk in with like my knowledge of whatever it is. I have to build the world for the filmmaker and what Edgar Wright is brilliant at doing and he does it in every film he does is he builds the complete world for us, uh, the viewer, and we don't need anything but that movie. You guys are um, working on season two of your show. Yeah, we, we already shot it, actually. Oh, you, uh, I, I think Bob, before you came in, said you were ed- working on like editing oh, yes. furiously. furiously. Do you guys like how often or how frequently do you kind of reference other horror comedies or horror films or comedies and just like this is what we're trying to go for but we don't we don't want it exactly we just want a piece and we want someone to be like i i know that reference i know that thing well the nice thing about our show is it's an anthology show so every episode mm. can ben's already said it's always like playing in a, in a big sandbox so each episode can be its own corner of the horror universe so like we one of my favorite episodes from season one is called evil doll and guy comes over to the house knocks on the door girl brought pulls him in it's like hey there's this doll that was on the shelf now it's standing on the floor and it's like a big dramatic scary reveal like da da there's the doll and the guy's like so what did it just fly <laughs> and it's like what would you do if an actual evil doll showed up and he kicks it out the window <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is is like if you've seen evil doll movies then you can think like yeah what would you do if that doll was just standing there probably something like kick it out the window but also if you've never seen an evil doll movie I, I think it still works so it allows us to like grab a certain like subgenre of horror and play mm. with it in our show. Well, and we did something on that episode too that is like an in-joke to an in-joke, which is that there's a cameo in it and the cameo is played by Tom Holland, the guy who directed Child's Play. Oh, nice. the original Chucky movie. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what one thing that strikes me about comedy horror as a genre is that it seems to obey much of the rules of comedy but has raised the stakes. Most yeah. comedies are predicated on the fact that the cast isn't all going to die. Um, so that is not true. <laughs> with, with we only have one episode where the whole cast dies, just to be Oh, clear. really? Okay. Um, <laughs> so, Shaun of the Dead is your guys' pick. Uh, ben and Bob, what do you got? Uh, our next pick is uh, the Stuart Gordon classic, Reanimator. Mm. Wow. So, the, the guitarist from the police and Stuart. Sting <laughs> from the police married... Had a baby. <laughs> and his name was Reanimator. I thought they hated Stuart each other. Sumner. You just completely short-circuited my brain. Okay. Wow. Um, so Stuart Gordon, I think, uh, reinvigorated the uh, long, fallow career of H.P. Lovecraft, whose work had been kind of lying around, not as appreciated as it could have been. 
It was uh, just laying dormant. That's all. Yeah, <laughs> dreaming. That's <laughs> right. In its castle, uh, under the sea. No, but uh, he. So he tackled Reanimator, uh, which is a very short H.P. Lovecraft short story, and he modernized it. It stars uh, Jeffrey Combs. And uh, it's bananas. It's yes. it to it's it's one of the craziest fucking movies of that of its of its period, and uh, right down to the Doctor Hill character at one point. So 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 the basic pitch of the movie is that this uh, genius medical school student has made this glowing green goo that can bring the dead back to life, but they come back kind of monkeys pawed if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like they're a little they're a little goofy. They're a little violent. They're a little horrible. They're not really zombies, but they're just super violent and kind of mentally stunted from the process of having been dead. Mm. And it's sort of just one of those movies where the character just keeps doubling down on knowing that he's a genius and he's getting closer and he's getting closer and, and leaving a trail of bodies in his wake, which he then reanimates and then more and more horrible things happen with each body. And so, you know, like Barbara Crampton plays uh, his love interest. Uh, he accidentally kills her father, who's like the provost or something at the university, reanimates him, and then he's like drooling and crazy and violent. Island. Yeah, like a provost. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, uh, probably one of the best known uh, parts of it is like one of the, 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 he has a teacher who's super jealous of him, Dr. Hill, and uh, he, he tries to take away his reagent and he ends up killing him and cutting off his head and his head gets reanimated and then he, his body gets reanimated and so you have a body being controlled by the head, walking around holding the head like in a, in a in a pan, and uh, there's even a scene where he ties down he uh, he ties down Barbara Crampton and performs cunnilingus on her with the head, and and to get that <laughs> level of visual pun in there uh, is uh, it's it's pretty impressive, uh-huh. and uh, and I mean the movie is genuinely freaky. I saw it when I was a kid on VHS, and it freaked me out. Yeah. But the older I got, the more I realized it's unbelievably hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a scene where they reanimate a cat early on, and it's. Uh, it it's just it's it's hilariously ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Bob, do you have anything to add? As an asterisk, I mean, uh, Stuart Gordon um, lives and works in Los Angeles. Yeah, and he's actually become a really successful theater director. So he actually took Reanimator and turned it into a stage musical, and it was called Reanimator the Musical, and it played multiple theaters, multiple runs in Los Angeles and Vegas. And the funny thing is, like, it's a hilarious, awesome show, and yet it's really just. Reanimator the movie with musical numbers. He didn't uh-huh. have to necessarily add that many jokes. I mean, it, it works just as a horror comedy in whatever medium it is. Yeah. I think that's really hard to pull mm-hmm. off. Well, and I think that's one of the things about Stuart Gordon is that all of his work, even his most serious work, there's a he has such a sense of humor and it comes through in his work. And so he followed this up with another H.P. Lovecraft adaptation called From Beyond, and it's even more bananas in in a, in a bunch of ways and stars a bunch of the same people. But it's also really really funny. Um, but, but I mean, it's like he finds this weird, surreal, dark, funny Mm -hmm. irony in life. And in the, in the case of reanimator, which was kind of a low budget horror movie, even at its time, like I I'd say that both the horror and the comedy are about as ramped up as they can possibly be. Mm -hmm. Would you say this is, uh, cocaine writes a movie or it is, is it, (laughs) why is it so wild and crazy? Is the original source. It's very surrealistic, like and I don't yeah. know if that's what they were going for, but it's got this Winnell sort of like slicing up eyeballs kind of like, yeah. <laughs> like there is bizarre visual quality to it. So well, I don't know okay. if that has something to do with I, it. I should, I should do a little bit of full disclosure. Both Bob and I know Stuart um, reasonably well. and uh, He's getting a kickback from this episode. Yeah, yeah. Stuart, <laughs> Stuart's getting, yeah. Enjoy your, your money, Stuart. But um, no, but, but it's like uh, Stuart is just like 
an outrageously smart guy with uh, just his brain is always going a million miles a minute, and, and he's a provocateur, I think, above everything else. And I think that when he's when he's making a movie like Reanimator, he's thinking of things that are provocative, but I also am like reanimating the cat or, or the Cunnilinga scene, mm-hmm. where I'm sure that it cracked everybody up to do yeah. it because it's yeah. so fucking weird and goofy. Yeah. But at the same time, like when you stop and think, it's a reanimated headless body holding a reanimated bodiless head performing a sex act. <laughs> yeah. And they like would f- they would just find funny I don't think it's cocaine writes a movie. I don't know if they were I'm sure everybody was doing cocaine back then. Mm-hmm. But they're all they were all theater people. They have they founded the Organic Theater in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Um and that's where I think most of these people came from. And I just think that they they had a shorthand and they would come up with shit that mm-hmm. would make them laugh. So, you yeah. know, like when Dr. Hills when they when Dr. Hills head needs to be set straight up and they kind of put it on one of those receipt spikes or whatever. Yeah. Like they're doing stuff that, that had to be cracking them up. Like they're just all smart, funny people. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, lack of creativity that has existed in some horror, horror films, uh, I think reveals the lack of ambition that people have within that genre. They just think horror is reduced to jump scares and gore. And that's, all one need to do to yeah. fill the needs of the audience. Well, who's the science fiction writer who said that 90% of everything is crap? I mean, I think that, you know, yeah. horror, horror movies don't escape that. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of bad horror movies, but there's a lot of bad movies, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm, I was glad that we did we we tackled the horror comedy today because I think that in particular as a genre is so hard to get right and people love them so much that like there's like all the ones that we're talking about are stone cold classics cuz there's just not that many good ones. So I, true, I th- yeah, and, and this has become like a little cottage industry unto itself, right? There's like the sequels, right? There was a musical that played it somewhere in Hollywood. Yeah, they yeah, still be, I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah still, still playing, right? No, uh, I, no. think they, I think they just right, they played maybe last year, but I think, oh, really? Yeah, they, took just, they took it to Vegas. Uh, yeah, you're did, did, did they do the Vegas show? They did it at the right. Wind for a while, I believe. Yeah. Um, yep. Broadway, off Broadway, off off Broadway. Um, I don't think they ever took it to Broadway. You're no, thinking of re Reanimator. Oh, dang it, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. He's been sitting on that one for like yeah, seven we minutes. We make Reanimator. Oh, my God. Re-animator. Why are we still sitting here doing a podcast? We need to go make podcast a zombie over. Annie movie. She Can does have like that kind of those blank dead eyes in the she comic did. strip anyway. <laughs> so did Daddy Maybe you don't, you don't she a zombie. You don't want to know what they do with the dog. You just don't. No, I didn't, I didn't realize. I, when you brought this up, I looked. I looked up Stuart Gordon. Yeah. He wrote Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Indeed, he did. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. That's a bit of a tonal shift. He he made robot jocks. He's like, all I, even though he's no. I have, uh, okay, I have a Uh great story about robot jocks. We need your robot jock story instead of Stuart. I was like a teenager, and uh, my stepdad, Morgan, who I've mentioned on the show a couple of times. Hey, Morgan. um, We'd go see movies all the time, all the time. And, uh, be weird kind of movies that I was probably too young to go see that I can't <laughs> that I've either blocked out of my head. Um, one time we went to go see uh, uh, Leprechaun. Oh yeah, nice. We, I want me gold. We walked out of that movie because he didn't he didn't like it. A movie that we sat all the way through. We drove over to like Santa Monica to see it. Was Robot Jocks, uh. <laughs> and like it was so. It's like no offense. It's kind of super bad. Kind of awful, but like I'm not agreeing I, I, with the steward. If you're hearing this podcast, <laughs> uh, don't worry about that. But like, it's just one of those movies that, like, I feel like I'm one of four people that have seen, and it was just like, oh, I don't. This is you're also did, a kid, did, so maybe maybe it went over your head a little. I don't. Bit. Know, it's like how did how did we sit through all of this? But then the guy was getting pogo stick to death in Leprechaun, and that was like 
over the top. That too was much. that wasn't good uh, enough. Like that was or that was a. Uh, uh, that was too bad to do. Well, to you watch. and I have something in common because I also saw robot jocks in the theater. Two All right. The um, <laughs> my, my reanimator story is I remember being a kid, not a kid, but like a junior high and going to the local V like, like back in the day, kids, we actually had to rent these VHS uh, things. And I remember seeing the cover for this and just thinking, this looks absolutely fucking bonkers. Mm-hmm. The, the cover itself was just, just, just like crazy. If I remember it's got like, the main character with like like it's doing like almost like the Frankenstein with the head. It was oh, just like this yeah, thing. Yeah. And as I got a little bit older, I realized one of my friends owned a video his family owned a video store. So we could get whatever it's the Holy Grail, man. Oh man. I watched so many movies through that. And that was one where it was like we grabbed it, but it turned out it was the R rated version. Yeah. So like there's all these scenes that I've I don't know because they they wound up I found out years later they were like had an R-rated version, then an unrated version. The holding the, of the head sex act was actually from the unrated version. Yeah, so no. when you yeah. said that, I'd never heard that before because that's that's the, what I what I remember as a kid is the R-rated. How could version. they cut that out? Because it because it made it X back in the day, so they they you had don't to release see it R-rated. Anything. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> you just see a, a headless body holding a head between a beautiful woman's legs. Ben is also a certified a certified daycare provider too. So <laughs> I'd like to see the negotiations that went on on that yeah. one, whether or not. So can we have two seconds of the head down there, or how many seconds can we get it? Can we still get an R? I think the MPAA was somewhat weaponized in the '80s. Like I remember, oh. Phantasm Two cut one of the death scenes frame for frame. Like Phantasm, the original, and they got an X rating, and they had to go back. Oh, that's hilarious! All right, Richard and Michael. Okay, talking about movies that go from like a hard R uh, X rating to a PG thirteen rating, uh, we're going to talk about 1984's Gremlins. Okay, which um, directed by Joe Dante, who's done a whole bunch of other like horror films. He directed The Howling and um, Piranha, and another uh, one that we almost chose was The Burbs. Right. For a while, we were trying to shoehorn in, you know, these different categories. And you're like, there's not a lot of good, like, serial killer slasher movies that are comedies that aren't like, uh, what was the knockoff of Scream? Uh, scary movie. Scary movie. Right. Like, it was just like, everything's well, kind of like. that's a parody, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Scream is almost a horror comedy. We could debate that. We debated it. We almost chose yeah, it. Yeah, we, we almost did. chose it. I uh, think Scream has one of the best horror comedy moments ever, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> but Gremlins is one of those movies that has just enough of like that kind of, you know, Spielbergian magic twilight twinkle to it, but then is uh, also kind of filled with like a family-friendly cartoon plush character that you can see stuck on the window of your car. And then these genuine like kind of thrills and kind of terror sequences where these horrible green monsters are attacking this town. And I think the one that really jumped out for me um, was uh, the mother in the, of the household is kind of like walking around the house and she knows something's wrong and she's kind of creeping down the stairs and then she's creeping past like the Christmas tree and like you just see like these little eyes light up like Christmas lights and this thing just this Christmas tree attacks her and she has to fight it off with like swords and she fights other and she destroys these things in like the um in the microwave and the blender and it's so gory and like mm-hmm. gruesome but also cartoonish and like there's you know the blood is green and it explodes so that, like it takes it's enough there's enough there that uh as a horror movie and as a kind of like a thriller and then there's 
the super cute stuff with Howie Mandel squeaking around as And as gizmo. far as like that death with the uh, the, the gremlin, it was in a microwave, right? Yeah, they like, did one in the microwave. and It came out the same summer as Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Right. And that also had like the heart ripping. And because of both of those movies, that's why they created PJ-13. Right. Which is like, we oh. just got to finally draw the line somewhere. So <laughs> Gremlins does have a place in It's interesting that, that. Like, that they ding Spielberg twice. Yeah. In the same in the same summer for like mm-hmm. you're, you're taking it too far. He's pushing the envelope, Spielberg. <laughs> Come on, man. noted horror comedy master uh, <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Wasn't he also being going through an ugly divorce? <laughs> Is that what I think? <laughs> hearing that that led to some His of the darkness. Heart was being ripped out. Yeah. He was thinking a little, about putting, little on the nose. Yeah. Are you suggesting he's put? He was thinking about putting Amy Irvin in a in, microwave. In the microwave. Yeah. yeah. But there are like just some like the movie is genuinely funny with a, a lot of like the comedy around like. Uh, his parents and his dad is like this kind of hapless inventor. And it starts to get a little bit more broad with the gremlins just being, they were these like these terrifying little monsters. And then they're just at a bar drinking yeah. and like yeah. flashing everybody. And you're like, what is, what are these things? They're surely teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do they adopt all like these mannerisms within like five minutes of screen time and they're flashing everyone. They're like just these little amazing creatures. I just love this movie and um, Gremlins 2 certainly took it to a whole new level <laughs> I of love parody. Uh, I don't know who does this, but there's a Twitter feed called the Institute of Gremlins 2 Studies, which you should definitely <laughs> check out. All right, so does that bring us to our halftime? We're, we're, we're at halftime. Okay, cool. So um, Of the big game. Of the big I game. Cannot, like legally say anything else. <laughs> Want to thank um, the the guys, the creators of Twenty Seconds to Live, Ben Rock and Bob DeRosa, for being here. You can find more information about their series now in its second season, currently being edited, at uh, Twenty Seconds to Live with a two and a zero at the front, or at two two zero STL on Twitter. Um, we are at our halftime, and I want to implore you to um, support the Mount Rushmore podcast. Um, by download, rating, and reviewing our podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. We really would like your feedback, so please, if you have the opportunity, leave a comment uh, on what you think of the podcast and would love a five-star review. And then another place to join the dialogue with the Mount Rushmore podcast is our Facebook page. You can go up there and suggest um, topics. You could comment on topics you've heard. Uh, You could join the dialogue. You could do the same thing on our Twitter and our Instagram handles and if you have a good like french onion soup recipe yes we'd love to have or chowda maybe if you want to all good yeah and um we would love to uh, talk with you in our social media world and we'd also love to offer you listeners of mount rushmore podcast a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out these peeps named audible audible is an awesome organization and they're one of our sponsors and I'm telling you that there is such an opportunity to go on there and find something you like. You might want Turning Face, A Tale of Horror, Comedy, and Wrestling, uh, the Audible Audio Edition by Todd Curlis. I've not heard this. It's just the first thing that came up when I searched Audible <laughs> for <laughs> <and> comedy. <laughs> uh, this is how little planning I do. Um, but, you know, there's a 180,000 titles to choose from so you're going to find something that you can listen to on your iphone android kindle or mp3 player and this is a free 30-day trial and it helps us out when you go to uh, audibletrial.com rushmore again that's audibletrial.com rushmore for your free audiobook we just, are also just don't to, just don't go after midnight yeah. you know you can because no, you, you don't know what it turns <laughs> no, into or don't don't eat <laughs> yeah. um you know what they, what they could do on audible 
They do have dramatizations of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, etc., etc. Oh my gosh, that's perfect. You should probably go do that. Definitely do that. And we're back. This is the back half of our discussion of the Mount Rushmore of comedy and horror genre. And I need to reveal something. You guys have seen this bloody bag that I've had. Been I was wondering about that. (laughs) The blood dripping from it. Uh, Well, it's the special bloody edition of the Borglum bag, which is uh, the repository that I have for my judge pick. And my judge pick is something that I know you guys probably considered. I know you guys probably thought of it. But it was, for me, the um, epitome of horror comedy when I was a teenager. And I probably saw it way too soon and it scarred me as an adult. And that is um, the American Werewolf in London. And as a big fan of comedy and John Landis, uh, I was so kind of destroyed when he went into this horror um, direction but was amazed at his ability to spring me back and forth between the two genres and do them both so effectively. Also, while uh, creating these two characters uh, using David Naughton, the the Dr. Pepper guy, and Griffin Dunn as his sidekick, two characters that I wanted to hang around with and pal around Europe together and and see the world through. So that was a huge, huge uh, influence on me. Um, And the first movie I ever saw that had a dream sequence inside of a dream sequence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're right. Um, so that's in the bag, and I can uh, open this bloody bag at any point uh, during the judging portion of this show and use it to trump one of your great choices. And who knows, I might do that. The suspense is killing us. One of the things about... Uh, also, another movie, I should say, that has a great soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Oh, there yeah. seems to be something oh, yes. about horror, hom- comedy horror movies that yeah. bring out the best in whoever is making the soundtrack. Yes. I think he almost took the Scorsese approach. Um, if in Mean Streets or Taxi Driver or even Goodfellas, you see gruesome things happening while popular music plays. Right. Yeah. So but you, in the case of American Werewolf in London, it's covers of Blue Moon yeah. except for Moondance. Is that there, right? There's like, all... there's like four covers of Blue Moon in that mm-hmm. movie. It comes in with like, the, I don't know who the singer is, but the original like 1950s the one. Marcells. And yes. then it goes yeah. out, it ends with a bomb, but a bomb, but dang, dang, dang. That yeah. end, it ends with that one. But then during this, the love scene, uh, Moon Dance plays. Yeah. So I, well, I But think... there's even like a jazzier version of Blue Moon that, that plays right? when he's transforming the first uh-huh. time. And there's Bad Moon Rising. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Moon, yeah. Comedic effect. The, My bad. The choice of Shaun of the Dead may be... Uh, but planted this in my mind, how often horror comedy uses uh, horror tropes shot in in full light. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, David Naughton's character transformation into, I think that's a Rick Baker effect. Absolutely. That, that is the, the Rick Baker. Yeah. Rick, Rick Baker creature creator? That's right. Rick Baker? That's okay. right. And not the plumber in North Hollywood, the, the creature creator, uh, showing a transformation, a werewolf transformation where he doesn't um, cl- clutch his chest and fall behind a sofa. Then stand up a little bit more hairy, then walk through a doorway. Then on the other side, he's a little bit more hairy. <laughs> but there is in that transformation, and I love that transformation, and it's a, a part of me. Mm-hmm. There's, a, it's like mostly David Naughton, and they're doing it very artfully. And then at one point in the middle of it, they just cut to a shot of like a figurine of Mickey Mouse, like sitting yes, on a yeah. shelf. And that's when they cut back. It's the fake uh, David Naughton head with the snout stretching moment. Uh-huh. Whereas same year. Uh, Rob Bottin, uh, no, no, uh, uh, the Howling, the Howling, okay, uh, does with Robert Picardo does I think a much better werewolf transformation uh-huh. and with very very few cuts, uh-huh. and I would argue the Howling is almost as funny as an American Werewolf in London. I would disagree. 
His his original cut of that um, was David Naughton walking behind the stairs or okay. walking down behind the uh, like a sofa behind the sofa and then coming up as a werewolf and doing <laughs> the elevator thing idea. behind the sofa and then coming up. Like, as maybe a we werewolf. should get Rick Baker. In. Yeah, he was, <laughs> Rick had this idea. I'm so glad you picked that movie, Jeff. We debated: what, you, is, okay. is it a horror comedy or is it just a really good scary yes. movie that's super funny? Yes. We debated it. I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. Well, so. I love it too. I just I would argue that it's a horror movie that has funny people in it. Yeah. Even John hey, Landis hey, we love said, we love it too. Don't, okay, don't, don't just let them get off. I'm saying John Landis has even said it's not a comedy; it's a tragedy. Yeah, and, you know, he well, did make the movie. Rob Bottin's hand guided the. Uh, most almost comedic slash surreal elements of the thing, which were yeah. the creature transformations. Oh, yeah. oh my god! Uh, and I'm that movie scared the shit out of me. So it definitely is a a horror film with comedic the uh, thing elements. I yeah. mean, the thing again to me. Well, okay, I'm going to just say I think horror movies are completely dry if they don't have any humor in them at all. Yeah. So the thing I would not argue is a horror comedy ever, mm-hmm. but it's got some great laugh lines. Yeah. You gotta be fucking kidding me! <laughs> <laughs> head yeah. sprouts legs and crawls across the floor like a spider. Um, so that's in the bag, and then uh, Ben and Bob, you're up. All right, it's time for Evil Dead Two. Oh wow! Which I think any good conversation Love about comedy, you can't, you have to bring it up. Um, I saw it in the theater. Did you see it in the theater? I did. I did see it in the theater. I was too young to see it in the theater, and I, I, a friend of mine invited me to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I proceeded to hate. But it was a midnight screening, and me and my friend snuck into and watched Evil Dead Two, which was released unrated. So That's I was right. like, oh. I was like fifteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Evil, um, I don't know if I need to pitch the movie. Basically, it's the Evil Dead universe. Uh, the original one was super low budget. Then they had a few million bucks for Evil Dead Two, so they. Instead of just doing a straight sequel, because I guess they weren't sure whether or not people were going to have seen the original. They did also, kind of they a, couldn't get the rights to any of the original footage, so they had to sort of... Oh, okay. Because a different, oh, company, really? a different company owned the original Evil Dead, and, and De Laurentiis made Evil Dead too. Got it. Well, they, they basically then just kind of did a, like a recap five-minute version of the movie to start it off to catch everybody up. But then they just they took everything that was in the original movie and just cranked it up you know, way past a lot. And they also sort of like summarized the first movie in the first ten minutes of the sequel. Right. And then, so you've got Ash by himself, and and like pretty much the greatest Cabin in the Wood mo- it Woods is. movie, uh, and it's, I mean, it's just, it's in, it's insanely inventive and scary and bloody, but also just crazy funny, like like a like a, a Three Stooges level of farce. Well, that's when they started getting like they all were inspired by Three Stooges kind of stuff. Sam Raimi and Robert Tappert and Bruce Campbell and all those guys, and that was when they went all fully Bruce Camp, uh, fully uh, Three Stooges on us, uh, very very slapstick. But then it would be it's slapstick guided by a horrible malignant supernatural force that's trying to you know kill everybody. The Three Stooges in this case were Klaatu, Barata, and Nikto. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, I one thing I saw before I saw Evil Dead 2 was the Charlie Chaplin film The Gold Rush where he's he's a master of physical comedy and sight gags and and he, in The Gold Rush he's trapped in a cabin and he's starving and there's all these elements that are kind of trying to kill him and I remember seeing the uh, Evil Dead 2 and feeling like uh, um, Bruce Campbell was doing Buster Keaton level visual um, oh for sure physical comedy and uh, Charlie Chaplin level kind of you you had a, an amount of pathos for this guy, um, uh, so it almost felt like that genre maybe had its uh, 
a predecessor in silent film or to, to I would, mid to I would say so. I would say definitely silent film, definitely vaudeville, and mm-hmm. those guys were all obsessed with the Three Stooges. Yeah. So the Three Stooges are, are clearly inspired by that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. the, the scene where Bruce Campbell's hand becomes possessed and it attacks him and flips him over and does all these terrible uh-huh. things until he cuts his own hand off. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, like that—that's just—that's just one guy doing like five minutes of uninter- uninterrupted slapstick. Yeah, yeah, and it does seem knowing having read Sam Raimi's books or Bruce Campbell's books about the making of the first film and the second, it does seem like there was a, a directorial uh, mission from Sam Raimi to, to try to destroy Bruce Campbell or, or find the limits of his talent. Totally. Yeah. Well, I, and it's also the movie where he attaches the chainsaw to his hand uh, with the iconic line, groovy, you know. <laughs> but the thing is that, it, to me, genuinely, the movie is very scary. There's, there's moments where like you're kind of in the point of view of this evil force that's following them and it's kind of this creepy ass mm-hmm. shot that they do all the time or you know there's many iconic shots of the hand coming out of the ground or yeah. whatever when his girlfriend after he chops her up kind of reforms as a ghost and dances for him uh-huh. it's pretty chilling creepy ass stuff yeah. but then after he cuts his hand off and puts it under a bucket and then tries to find some books to wait at the top book is a farewell to arms you know you know they're making a comment <laughs> Michael you'd comment oh I always like seeing like a director's early work to see how much it influences something that he does later I know that like a lot of like the you know like something that was a lot bigger like spider-man 2 had these big kind of kind of terror sequences with like his dr octopus character and these arms that were like moving independently and they kind of had their their mind of their own and when he had like his birth sequence it was very much it felt very much like oh i've done this horror movie and now i have a hundred million dollars and let's see what i can do and like a lot of this like the shots were very very similar like uh like the point of view shot where like the arms are chasing after someone oh, like sure. a chainsaw uh, or that the hand shot and like it's I love to see a director who starts small but then uses all like the the tricks of directing and the tricks of cinematography in a bigger movie and to see like oh he came his roots came from something that were you know he kind of had to do something that's kind of catch his catch can and like we're working on a limited budget but when they make it big to see like, oh, now I can really kind of unload and see and go to that yeah. next level. I feel like Dark Man is the in-between of those oh, yeah. films because he does have these, he's flying from building to building. He's oh, a yeah. super heroic type of uh, uh, strengths as a man who can feel no pain. Is that what Dark Man? Yeah, he, what, yeah. his nerve endings are all yeah. damaged and mm-hmm. he can feel no pain and he's wearing artificial skin that only lasts, yeah. I forget, 90 minutes yeah. before his face melts off of his creepy-looking, zombie-looking face. But like Michael said, you do see Sam Raimi playing with bigger toys from a storytelling standpoint, but also taking the restraining bolt off his imagination because now it's not fettered by a, a camera that's breaking down in the cold, yeah. cold weather. <laughs> it's interesting to see like kind of the progression of Sam Raimi because he goes from like Dark Man and then he he did like a simple plan. Well, mm-hmm. uh, he, he did. There were steps between uh, Evil Dead and, and Army of Darkness kind of stuff. Army of Darkness was a pretty reasonably yeah. budgeted movie, but uh, you know he he did a simple plan. He did the gift, and then he did Spider Man. I th- or maybe I have the gift and Spider Man mixed up, but uh, it was it was around the same time. But it's like he. I think that he came at it very visually initially and then became very character-centered. And interestingly enough, a friend of mine worked on a, on a project of his recently, and I asked him what it was like, and he said uh, he doesn't even talk... Not that he's... He's not not talking.
talking to the crew. But like basically, he just works with the actors and the cinematographers and camera people already already know what to do. Oh, okay. And I and I think that you know the arc of of if if I'm to understand this correctly, and I may not, uh, is, is that like he starts. You can tell very obsessed with visuals and construct and sequence construction. And I think that he's come to a point where he's mostly concerned about characters and oh. and and all that stuff, which is you know it's a it's a more mature approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, guys, what do you got? Uh, our next film is kind of in that same vein. It's uh, 1992's uh, Dead Live, also known as Brain Dead. Oh yeah, Peter Jackson yeah. movie, big and time. this was like before, you know, obviously, you know, before he made it big with uh, Lord of the Rings or even what was the uh, what was the kind of smaller Frighteners, Frighteners, Frighteners. Uh, the Frighteners. There was another one with the girls, with heavenly creatures, with heavenly creatures, heavenly creatures. Thank you. Um, this was his like zombie movie. And this movie is ridiculous from its, the inception is that someone is bitten on Skull Island, which he'll later revisit. He'll revisit Skull Island again with when he did his remake of King Kong by a Sumatran rat monkey. And then... <laughs> it's like a little stop motion guy, if I remember. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so silly. And then this rat monkey gets moved to New Zealand because of course, and then it bites someone else. And that person happens to be the mother of the main character, Lionel, and he has like this weird relationship with it, like a very kind of abusive relationship with his mom. He's very uh, doting to her. So she turns into a zombie, but he can't deal with it. So he keeps her in the basement on these drugs. And it's this, this, he keeps this pretense up of keeping his mom alive with drugs, even though she's as, it's like, it's ridiculous. And that is even before you get to the scene where he's using a full push lawnmower to mow down zombies. One of the greatest zombie kills of all time. (laughs) It's like kick ass for the Lord. And that scene too, where like the, they're having a, you know, a few last season and over the course of the last year, we talked a lot about like 1950s cool. Mm -hmm. And this movie is set in like 1957. And there's this element of like this, rockers versus kind of prep or rockers versus nerds mm-hmm. sort of thing that happens at this house party where all the these kind of thugs these hoodlums get turned into zombies mm-hmm. and they start attacking all of these uh kind of nerds and mm-hmm. uh girls in this house and it's i love we've talked a whole lot about like like 1950s cool leather jacket iconography and i love them turned into zombies they're like mm-hmm. they're the punk rocks punk rockers of the <laughs> 80s because yeah, exactly. yeah. all you need to do is put a leather jacket on a zombie uh, and suddenly he's cool and eating your face uh, so I, I've never seen this I've oh. never heard uh, of it uh, it's amazing I'll, it's I'll, insane yeah. it's a really good movie because it, it goes it goes from like this it's kind of this weird kind of psychological thing for this main character Lionel where he's it doesn't uh, stop being that though yeah. it gets pretty edible at the end <laughs> really yeah. like the, there's zombies that are having sex and there's a, oh, yeah. a weird, then the mom grows. It's like, it's literally all over the place, but mm-hmm. it's so, you see like these elements that he does with like his shot selection, uh, Peter Jackson, that you can see later on in the Lord of the Rings. Like he has like these pan zooms that I think he does also in Lord of the Rings. And like to see a clever director, like we we're talking about with Sam Raimi move yeah. from, you know, I only have a couple hundred thousand dollars to make this movie to I have $300 million to make this epic. But use some of those tricks, I think, is interesting. Mm-hmm. And the movie is just funny. Like you, Ben, you mentioned uh, the I kick ass for the lore sequence. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bit where out of nowhere, they're like in a graveyard and these kind of zombies are attacking. And then the priest like 
appears on the top of a tomb and jumps down and he starts like kung fu fighting these zombies. It's pretty. It's and pretty he's like this white-haired <laughs> priest and it's so unexpected and you're just like, "What are mm-hmm. what is this <laughs> thing?" So many fresh choices. That's the thing is like it feels like a guy who's seen Evil Dead, he's seen all the Romero movies mm-hmm. and he's like, "You know what? I'm just not going to I'm not going to repeat any of that stuff. I'm going to all fresh new choices. Why not have kung fu priest kicking zombies he doesn't even live like that if you had that character today that character would make it to the end because that'd be a fan favorite uh, doesn't he die like right in that scene like yeah, in a minute scene, and a okay. half and yeah. late, later on there's like a this the main character lionel is like this real wimpy like that's the, the arc of the characters right. he's like this downtrodden wimpy his mom's his mom his mom's like abusing him and treats him like garbage and doesn't want him to date anyone and it's him trying to protect her and then he has to come out of that shadow and turn into this ass kicker who's mm-hmm. chopping up zombies and just, just you know, cutting people's arms off and doing all the things that the hero should do. But he has to get to the point where he almost looks like the zombie himself. It's He's covered in it's blood. It's cartoonishly bloody. It's, uh, yeah, a lot yeah. less the, the line is, with uh, uh, Dead Light, uh, Evil, Evil Dead, Dead 2. Which yeah. is interesting because that's a lot of, this is like this delineating line, right, of Peter Jackson films. You've got the you know bad taste, which was basically like this thing he made in his backyard. With I love his that movie so much. You got Meet the Feebles, no, which is a, it's the most uh, disgusting thing I've ever meet seen. Meet the Feebles is so transgressive, right? Like it's like Peter Jackson is a different filmmaker today than the guy who made Meet the Feebles, and I want the Meet the Feebles guy back. <laughs> then you've got this, and then you've got Heavenly Creatures, which is like just a hundred percent total shift. And so it's interesting that this is like the last movie he made that was really like a in his splatter gore comedy <laughs> sort of phase and then from there he goes to this like psychological drama about two you know teenage girls who end up becoming killers i love the discussion of career and where horror or horror comedy might fit in that lineage for a director were horror to be considered a b genre until the movie psycho or until mm-hmm. it kind of broke out of it would you say it's a good uh low budget um um, school for filmmakers and uh, or has traditionally been hell yeah, yeah 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 I mean you know when you look at most filmmakers scroll down to the beginning of the, I mean even look at Spielberg you know what's his first movie Duel Duel is uh-huh. kind of a horror movie and then his first blockbuster is Jaws which you could argue isn't a horror movie but I'd argue that it it relies on the engine of a horror movie mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Both horror and comedy separately are genres that you can do a lot with a little mm-hmm. so like comedy you just need really funny people you need great writing horror it's like you can have a lot of resources but also like you look at films like night of the living dead and and in evil dead you can do a lot with almost nothing mm-hmm. and so i think i think genre films that directors tackle earlier in their career it's it's them learning to to tell bigger stories with with almost no resources and i think that's that's why a lot of these filmmakers have gone on to i think really incredible careers because mm-hmm. in the beginning they were forced to like learn how to do it yeah. with nothing well, well Another element that I would bring up too is that like those kinds of genre movies don't require giant stars to get either made or to find you know like no one in America knew who Simon Pegg was when Shaun of the Dead came out, but that movie was a reasonably good hit, and it's because it was great. And in fact, sometimes having a having a huge cast like I'm thinking of the 1999 remake of The Haunting with Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta Jones. Oh yeah, like, like it doesn't work. 
because it's like you walk in with all these preconceived ideas about Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta-Jones, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And, and so to me, like, it's better if I don't know who, some, who, who anyone in the cast is. Well, the first time you saw The Evil Dead 2 even, you probably had no idea who, uh, who Bruce Campbell was. Mm-hmm. So you don't walk in with a, with a set of ideas so, so they can build a new thing for you for the first time. And comedy is the same way. You know, when you see an inspired comedy, when you see something like The Foot Fist Way, you, you don't know who Danny McBride is, but suddenly here's this guy doing a thing you've never seen before. Yeah, And that's like, I think almost like, to get back to Peter Jackson, The Frighteners was like that in a sense. I think a lot of people went into it thinking it was going to be Marty McFly does a horror film. And it went against the myth of Michael J. Fox and it tried to recast Michael J. Fox as a different kind of person. And I think that worked in its favor and also against it a little bit. Yeah. I think a lot of critics at least went into it expecting that. And when they didn't get that, it didn't match like their expectations. And I think that's why at the time it was kind of considered to be a failure. So, uh, when you're describing um, one of the co- more comical aspects of Dead Alive as a preacher doing kung fu, is that mm-hmm. right? It made me think of how other uh, people who are so closely as- associated with the genre, such as martial arts, uh, Jackie Chan, I think of um, Stephen Chow, or um, am I getting that name correctly? Correct. Uh, um, Who's the fat guy? Who's the fat guy? Yeah, Stephen Chow in Kung Fu Hustle. There we go. Uh, using comedic elements to rise above your typical uh, martial arts film. So yeah. there's another genre that's that's uh, has as rife opportunity to make people laugh or to do something novel like Jackie Chan does in almost every fight he does. But I mean, think there really is only one Jackie Chan, and I think it's because when you're someone who can blend two genres that well, there really aren't... Most people are lucky if they can think straight in one genre. Mm-hmm. But to be able to kind of somehow juggle both all the elements of a horror and a comedy or in that case of a comedy and kung fu mm-hmm. you know it's like why couldn't that work together but Jackie Chan's the guy is the guy who does yeah. that the way he does yeah. it well Michael's also describing the hero's journey as it applies to these uh, stories too it's an individual who's just beaten down uh, for the first half of the movie and then devises a plan or an ensemble of people to help him yeah. uh, rise above that stuff and uh, they those plot lines don't diverge; they're convergent for a lot of these genres. So, Sammo Hung—that's the fat guy. Sammo Hung, the big from, guy from, from Martial Law. <laughs> yeah. Just want to make sure we got okay. that out there. Didn't want to confuse people. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, so, uh, uh, Bob and Ben, what do you got? Uh, our last one is 2012's Cabin in the Woods, which was directed by Drew Goddard, who hasn't, he's known mostly for television directing, but it was written by Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. And uh, they actually wrote it together and, in three days, supposedly. Wow. Yeah. Talk about some Coke fueled writing. <laughs> um, uh, I know I'm the only person in the room who would ever say this out loud. I don't really like Joss Whedon's work. This is the one thing he ever did that, that just blew my mind. And it was in the way that he kind of, uh, in the way that this movie decodes. Movies like Evil Dead, but there's a million zillion movies like that where it's a bunch of teenagers go to a cabin in the woods and they take such a different take on that um, and kind of pull apart the tropes similarly to how uh, Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven did with Scream in the 90s. And uh, and to me, it is also fucking hilarious. Like, oh, yeah. like it's it's got... As it, it, but it also is really scary. Like mm-hmm. they figured out kind of a story engine. Is that the word? Yeah. Where, where, whereby, you know, like you could have like <laughs> this cadre of monsters that are kept in this weird fortress and it's mm-hmm. like all part of this ritual. So the monsters are all real and the people are kind of just like corporate drones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the workaday life of the uh, 
white collar workers yeah. uh, who, who populate that uh, environment that's controlling like puppet masters the <laughs> the world that these young teenagers are pulled into. But it's but it's also like that could have been like a reveal much later in the film about even seeing any of that under the ground yeah. stuff. And they kind of they start there. Mm-hmm. It's like a workplace comedy, literally beneath. A traditional cabin in the woods horror movie, yeah, and the the way they blend those two and use it to kind of you know, like Ben said, decode mm-hmm. you know that trope in general. I think it, mm-hmm. is genius. I think it also has elements of the Bond henchman sort of idea. Oh yeah, like what if the henchmen were actually just kind of blue collar guys, right? Almost like a like Homer Simpson working for uh, Hank Scorpio, that sort of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they they could be the the. The Bradley Whitford and Richard Jennings Jenkins, Jenkins. Jenkins characters could be the guys who run a, a chicken disemboweling factory. Exactly, <laughs> and they're the white collar guys just kind of looking at spreadsheets while this nightmarish. But like <laughs> when the movie happens. started, like I remember like having a moment of like, did I go into the wrong movie? Because I thought I was in for a cabin in the woods movie, yeah. and it starts in kind of this underground bunker in there in like a golf cart driving around or whatever and it's it's so brilliantly blends all that Mm -hmm. and and there's there's also a a great scene where they're like ideating different ways that the stuff can go and they've got a big whiteboard and it's got all these different things and they're betting on yeah yeah, which which one's going to be the one and and, uh and uh, i think bradley whitford was the one that was all excited about a merman Uh about merman being (laughs) and then at the end he ends up getting a spoiler alert uh, to killed by a merman and it's like moments of just supreme irony Mm -hmm. uh that i don't know I, I just think uh, it. Uh, we almost picked Scream um, because Scream is also a great horror comedy that kind of plays plays on the tropes of the genre. But in a lot of ways, I think this. I don't know. This this does it in a different way that that I found really unexpected when mm-hmm. I saw it. I think these type of movies, the the state of mind that you're in when you sit down to watch it, makes a big difference in terms of how how much you like it or how successful you think it is. I remember watching Zombievers. Uh, not too long, not too long ago. <laughs> didn't make it through it. Well, you didn't. No, I watched like twenty minutes of it. Now you see, I think I think if I would have been sitting by myself or just kind of like, just did you read the book and you're like, oh, this is not like the book. <laughs> this is, they totally went off. The- <laughs> right. I think that was a Jane Austen. Jane Austen. Jane Austen. Book, right? Beaver, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I was sitting there watching it with like a big group of friends. We had been like, we were like, like half drunk at that point, and it was just like one of those communal sort of like just watching the movie and sort of like seeing how ridiculous everything was. And I think that made the movie work for me in a way. And you guys talked about that with some of the other movies as well. I think, it, again, it ties in this idea. When you go, when you see something like Happen in the Woods, everyone kind of can take something from it. Maybe you haven't seen every film that this is sort of referencing, right? But this person has seen some of it. You go, oh, yeah, I remember that from this. And it kind of becomes more of a communal experience. Through your experience, Experience and love for horror, you've become familiar with the tropes and the beats, and you got laughs from Cabin in the Woods, seeing how it fulfilled or um, uh, distracted you, or uh, fulfilled expectations or misdirected you from those, what those were. And my wife just saw it as a horror movie. There was, it was too scary to not to be a comedy. Really? And she was not, she's not familiar with those beats. Oh. So if she were to see, Evil Dead, she would just see it as a horror movie. She might wonder why it's so cartoonish. But uh-huh. I do wonder, is this a hipster genre where you're patting yourself on the back for getting it like, oh, they always do this. If, if she saw Shaun of the Dead, she would just think it was scary. She wouldn't think... Does she have a medical condition of some sort? Some sort of like... 
I think just, aphasia or something. something? I think in, I, you, you may be right about this. I mean, like there's kind of the meta comment on the genre thing, which is what Scream is as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, that maybe you could kind of put the label of hipsterism on something like this because it's clearly created by people who love this genre but have also dissected it completely. And they're like, oh, there has to be a gas station with a creepy old person who gives the main characters yeah. a dire warning, blah, blah, blah. You know, like they like there are these tropes that you just hit on every on every goddamn one of these. And, you know, even though they all do them differently, you know, like in Evil Dead, there isn't the creepy old guy, but there's the ricketiest bridge in the history of bridges mm-hmm. that they drive over that should serve as some kind of a warning. Like it's it's all in there. I, I, I don't think that the evil I don't think Evil Dead or Shaun of the Dead are uh, are meta necessarily, though. I, I mean, uh, Cabin in the Woods, by definition, is a very meta idea, mm-hmm. you know. OK. Uh, it looks like there's one choice and one choice to be made. Gentlemen. All right, so last one, and this is one that I will readily admit this is definitely on the comedy side of the comedy hor- horror genre. Um, perhaps the ultimate uh, satire, Young Frankenstein. Oh, okay, fun. Um, I didn't realize they actually used a lot of, a lot of the lab sets mm-hmm. um, from the original 1931. The Tesla Yeah, and all that sort of stuff yeah, yeah. was... Props from the original movie, mm-hmm. which just I think goes to show the level of detail mm-hmm. that went into making this movie. And I can talk about all the backstory and all that, but mm-hmm. it's Young Frankenstein. It's one of the funniest damned movies yeah. ever made. Um, and again, I think this ties into the it's the same thing, maybe as Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. You, you know that like Mel Brooks loved those Universal horror films, yeah, or else he wouldn't have been able to make something like this. Mm-hmm. Does it not emerge uh, from? I think Gene Wilder is the guy who pitched the idea, who wrote the sure. screenplay. He has a credit on the screenplay. And one thing that I think sells this film is Gene Wilder. Uh, throughout his earlier career, was this, and I, I think Gene Wilder functions so well in comedy because ultimately he he was a a dramatic actor who was just so hilarious when pushed to his wits' end. Well, same thing with Peter Boyle. Uh-huh. I mean, Peter Boyle was like a you know, heavy, serious actor yeah. before he started doing stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to be able to, you know, it's best comedy is comedy is played straight. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing with horror films as well. You can't, you can't be winking at the audience when you do something like this. Mm-hmm. I think it just totally shatters yeah. any sort of world building that you're mm-hmm. trying to do. And I think it's the same thing here. That's interesting because I think they do that quite a bit. I think that the Marty Feldman character is kind of, Winking to the camera quite a bit, and I think that even um, uh, Peter Boyle, especially well at the end, yes. Well, just, with with uh, Marty Feldman, it's hard to tell if he's winking at you. Or <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I think this is one we wanted to talk about a classic horror movie, but we weren't sure which way to go. We talked about like the Avant Costello thing, and like it must have been strange to make a movie like the Avant Costello meet Frankenstein. When like there was a generation that was that that was you know the the Universal monster movies were things that came out pretty f- recently. This is something that you had to call back to, especially in the tone of it. Um, I I don't know how far into it that they decided to make it black and white, which I thought was I think that was the move that kind of made the movie. If it, this, if it this was, movie was in color, it would be just like. Another comedy, but I think mm-hmm. that that since they were able to pull in kind of like that universal hammer sort of like you know overly saturated 
blacks and you know they they could film the monster looking monstrous yeah versus just him like with green skin it would have been i think that was such like such the, the smartest moment to make it a horror movie and like this is what this is this is it calls back to that but then you know it's you immediately bonkers. get the visuals of it yeah and actually a studio according to mel brooks wanted to make it a they wanted to they told him well you can shoot it in black and white but we also want to sh- we want to do a color version because in Peru, they just got color film, so we <laughs> yeah. wanted to be able to market that. And he's like, no, I know what you're going to do. You're going to say at the last minute, oh, we have to release the color version because mm-hmm. XYZ, he told him to go pound salt. Yeah. A lot of these directors seem to have so much of a, you know, with, with Blazing Saddles, that has a huge history of, of you know, Westerns built into it and yeah. tropes of that. Like, it's interesting that so many of these directors and creators have like been able to take from the past and to, to build on, you know, something that is f- very fresh, you know, like uh, the cabin in the woods, just a, a new idea based on all these other ideas that you're just like, I've never seen that before. And I think that even though you've seen Frankenstein before or any of the Dracula movies, you can, you see those elements in young Frankenstein, but it also feels like something different. Well, it's, I think the difference between parody and, use the word satire, but just they're honoring those movies. It's Mm. like, we're going to make this funny, but we're not making fun of it. We're not just pulling the tropes and making jokes out of it. Like a lot of those, like the scary movies kind of movies do. It's an, it's an homage. It's an homage. That's the word. Perfect word. Because like also those universal movies, they started really slow. They took their time getting to any monsters. So does young Frankenstein. It it just, it plays with all the, the structural and the sound tropes that those movies use. And that was kind of the shame of like Mel Brooks later career. Like where it yeah. went directly into parody and right. like Dracula Den loving it. Like, why didn't you release that as a black and white film or, or right. make more of an effort to, I've never seen it. I assume mm-hmm. it's terrible. It's not great. <laughs> but like, it's interesting to see that he had kind of reached the perfection with it in the seventies and then it just kind of went. Well, you know, the biz- Go ahead. I was going to say, you know what happened with Mel Brooks? I think, I think that the Zucker Abrams Zucker films kind of screwed with him. Because I think after those, after those the airplanes and the naked guns started coming out, he felt like he had to make everything a joke a minute. Versus, like you said, with the uh, like with Young Frankenstein, it takes, it kind of mimics that sort of feel of the original films. And if you look at Young Frankenstein, there's not a gag every minute. The gags that yeah. land land really hard. And I think Mel Brooks eventually kind of got to that point where he felt like he had to be like just throw as much stick onto the wall and see what stuck i think sometimes (laughs) i think sometimes the business changes around a filmmaker and what hollywood expects and what audiences expect and then they're kind of like well i was doing it a certain way and i mean some filmmakers never change with the i think quentin tarantino is just gonna always make his movie doesn't care but i think i think you're right i think mel brooks just he's been around for so many decades then all of a sudden he woke up one day in the business Hmm. of 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 those kinds of comedies it just changed Mm -hmm. i do think it's the stature of of the the genre and the stature of film had also kind of uh, I don't say lowered itself but broadened. There's so many film as a medium had aged. Uh, There's just so many diverse uh, genres and versions and variants of those genres that it seemed like there's not that much. Uh, if if the core of satire is taking something from a high level and bringing it down, uh, the work had already been done <laughs> for yeah. Yeah. for him. When I think of uh, Young Frankenstein. Uh, 
coming out in 74 on IMDb at least um, Blazing Saddles is also listed as 74 so the number one and number three films of that year is that right wow. yeah. yeah so I think pretty it, good year in as much as I really don't look at Blazing Saddles and I, I it doesn't have it doesn't kind of walks like a western and talks like a western but there's never a point where I think I'm watching a western I feel like I'm watching kind of an extended SNL sketch um, and there's characters and archetypes that we know uh, Brooks is winking at, um, but it uses the genre to its benefit in, whenever it feels like it and just kind of dispenses it's it. It's a broader film, but I also do think they went to great pains to make it look like an old Technicolor Western. Yeah, it does have a big cinemascope kind of yeah. forward kind of feel to yeah, it. Yeah, same thing with High Anxiety, which is the kind uh, of forgotten bring Mel Brooks film yeah. where it very much looks like it's a Hitchcock film. Even though, except when they, like you said, when they don't need it to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, those are fun choices. Um, so any uh, closing arguments? No. I'm surprised nobody mentioned Scream. I'm, yeah. I'm surprised I'm, that Scream didn't make the cut. I'm amazed that we put up totally different choices. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty rare that, you know, usually an argument between Richard and I will have some sort of... You know... One per, well, at least one pick that's... that's yeah, I, I'm, I'm... It's... It's been interesting to look at the genre and see just how vast it is and see how many movies are qualified yeah. to be considered. Yeah. And if I can bring up one crazy deep cut we were just talking about earlier. We had a deep cut that I'd never even seen that you pitched. Turned out Richard pitched the same movie. It's Man Bites Dog. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah and we shot oh, yeah. both you guys were I, fighting and both Michael and I were like, <laughs> I what think, movie? I think we shot it down for the same reason, which was just like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Michael, I believe, what did you say? It was like the Richard uh, freshman year of college starts watching a lot of movies. Yeah. And uh, At 3 runs into it. Yeah. That's pretty much what happened with Ben when we had that conversation. Yes. But I was like, Ben was making the same argument, just like, it's hilarious. I'm like, really? It is. It is. But uh, it's also super scary. And like, oh, yeah. yeah, I, I, I love Man Bites Dog. It's, the it's the, the one one that you pushed for that we didn't get to now that we're I guess we're doing the uh, the criterion should have could have yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you really wanted arachnophobia or not wanted but that's one that we kicked around a bit I you just mentioned two one. movies in a row that I had to stop because they just gave me the heebie-jeebies man duck bites dog when watching on a home video I had wow. to stop it because it's, it's disturbing just, and then I left the theater for arachnophobia that's what right. yeah. you have spider issues or Oh yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah! You shouldn't tell me that. No, I'm afraid of John Goodman, <laughs> <laughs> the Big Lebowski, worst horror comedy that's, ever. That's not a bad fear to have. That's just common sense, Jeff. Why did you pick arachnophobia? Well, we, why didn't we? Why or? didn't you? I don't know. I I think, just fell off the list. I, th I think because I think we were at the time we were still in the the category thing, and mm -hmm. it was an animal creature one. And I yeah. think we just like Gremlins a little bit more. Okay, I kind of I kind of tried to do a soft push for Piranha, but. I got shot down on that one pretty quick. <laughs> well, is there anything that your audience for 20 Seconds to Live has taught you about the productions you were been saying that you you choose kind of does one or everybody die? Was that one? There's only one episode where almost everybody dies uh -huh. all at once. I don't, I, I'll, let, I'll let the audience. You can binge every single episode we ever did in about 15 minutes. Yeah. So. Well, unlike, you know, uh, probably the, when when um, uh, George Romero sat down to do a zombie film, there's nobody... Uh, Typing in comments at the bottom, uh, or thumbs upping or thumbs downing. You know, there's people <laughs> in the audience giving reactions. But was there something that your audience uh, exclaimed about it, or would they say were there people looking for comedy who got too scared, or people looking for horror? Who I don't think our, any of our episodes. Are too, there are some. One of our friends showed our first episode to like 
a famous TV star who looked at, and got so grossed out. She was like, why would you ever show me that? And it was like the one episode where a face, Sorry, gets, Betty White. Where it, a face it, gets cut off. And yeah, it, it, ends, it ends super gross. It is by far the grossest one of the first season. And uh-huh. honestly, there's only a couple. We, we try not, we have some gross out episodes, but not too many. I, I think I think what we learned pretty quickly is our audience is is game for it. Like oh, they want cool. to try to figure who's going to die, how they want to be surprised. And so mm-hmm. when we're constructing episodes, we're always like, how can we honor that desire and, yeah. and, and make our episodes surprising while still fitting the, you know, the structure of the show. And I think to our credit, like we'll release a new episode and people are like, I never saw that coming. And like, yeah. if we can be hopefully one step ahead of our yeah. audience, uh, then we know we've made a good episode. And I think if we're thinking in our own selves, like what would what would I expect to happen right now, and then subvert that somehow, mm-hmm. or I, or make it not pan out exactly the way that that it would. And our producer uh, on on both seasons uh, is a woman named Kat Paziak, and a lot of times she would throw in. She's not as much of a diehard fan of the genre stuff as we are, but she would throw in ideas that would sometimes be like, "Oh my god, that had never occurred to me," because we're both kind of like in a lane like oh like, steeped in the horror. yeah yeah and and so to have an outside opinion kind of throw us for a loop was always fun too i mm-hmm. think if you think about all the movies we talked about i mean they're all examples of filmmakers going here's the tried and true way to do this what's the fun choice what's the fresh different thing to do i think that's kind of uh-huh. like a through line in all these movies we've been talking mm-hmm. about and that's what we try to do in our show well thanks for making great um horror comedy and thanks for joining us today on the mount rushmore podcast of horror comedy now i have the difficult challenge of ranking i'm sorry now I have the normally difficult challenge of finding a winner. This is the <laughs> point where we get points. screwed. Spoiler alert, Michael. <laughs> um, very often when guests come take on Richard and Michael as competitors, I, out of kindness, award them more points than Richard and Michael. But there's no kindness. You guys just did better. So um, I would like to uh, acknowledge your choices, um, uh, your cabin choices, Evil Dead 2 and Cabin in the Woods, two things that I agree with and enjoyed very much in the genre of horror comedy. Uh, so you'd each get a point for that, Evil Dead 2 and Cabin in the Woods. And for uh, Michael and Richard, I don't think you can have this conversation today without bringing up Shaun of the Dead and how much it has given to the world of horror comedy and to the world of last-minute Halloween costume choices. So um, You got a lot of cricket bats around yeah. here? <laughs> oh, my God, I'm rifle. I do have a rubber axe over there. Um, and the, uh, the creative choice of... You know, I, I also, th- I always think of this, I really realize it's not as a a kid's genre, but I always, th- but Gremlins, it was a fun, that was a fun pick too. Um, but just because you're the, um, the uh, guests and I like you guys to win, um, <laughs> I'm also going to choose Reanim- Reanimator. So Yay! there's an extra head as there should be on the Mount nice. Rushmore horror. <laughs> so it's like, it's like the band with two heads. Is yeah, one it's of the band. Them or nice. Rosie Greer is... We could just have like the George Washington holding his head because yeah. he's severed and he could be holding his yes, head. Yes, perfect. <laughs> Giving perfect. cunnilingus to Martha Washington. <laughs> Good <laughs> job, everyone. <laughs> For all our newly inaugurated fans of 20 Seconds to Live, when can they expect season two to drop? Well, we're playing um, the Vancouver Web Festival, which is a massive and super cool web festival in Vancouver. Uh, we're playing that next week. So uh, if you would like to go see our episodes live with an audience, which is how we recommend horror comedies be seen. Fly to Vancouver. Please go to Vancouver <laughs> and see our show. Uh, and then uh, um, hopefully episodes will actually be online either right before or right after. Mm-hmm. And go to 20secondstolive.com for more information. And you had some fans who kind of helped act as producers of your second season. 
Well, we did an Indiegogo campaign, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we raised you know a modest sum of money. <laughs> oh, okay, enough okay. money to shoot four episodes. So we're thankful to everybody who, yeah. who helped us uh, make this a reality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was uh, the first season was completely out of our own pockets, and the second season was it, you know how it goes. You run out of favors, so mm-hmm. you have to start paying people a little bit of something, something. Well, cool. I'm glad you're getting the support that you deserve for it. So this has been uh, Mount Rushmore podcast. I, as always, am Jeff. I'm Rich. I'm Michael. I'm Ben. I am Bob.